Welcome to Ag Matters, a podcast where we talk about both matters of agriculture and why agriculture matters. Here's your host, Dr. Amanda Stone, Mississippi State University Assistant Professor and Extension Dairy Specialist. All right, so welcome to Ag Matters. This is Dr. Amanda Stone, and today I have two guests with me, um, Kobe Rutherford and Brandy Karish. Do you all want to introduce yourselves, please? Sure. Um, I'll go first, I guess. I'm Brandy Karish. I serve as the State Beef Cattle Extension Specialist for Mississippi. And hello, everybody. My name is Kobe Rutherford, and at one time I was in the Animals and Dairy Science Department as a co-worker of Dr. Stone's, Dr. Karish's, but now I'm in the State 4-H office as a uh, 4-H specialist. Yes, and we miss him, of course. <laughs> we do. We will take him back anytime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning. Yeah. Thank you all for coming in. Um, so I was hoping that you could just kind of start by explaining what the beef industry looks like and, you know, what we do with our cattle and that type of stuff. Sure. Um, I guess give you a little bit of background. I grew up on a small cow-calf operation, so that means that my family had cows and they had babies and we raised them and took care of them until it was time for them to leave their mamas at weaning time. Um, and then they went on to the next phase of their lives. So that's kind of the first step in the beef industry. Um, and act- actually the majority of Mississippi producers that have cattle, that's what they do. And similarly, my story is very similar to Brandy's. I, I grew up on a cow-calf farm in Alabama and we would raise uh, calves to weaning and sell them at a local auction barn, and then they would go to the next phase of production, which Mississippi's also pretty well known for is the stalker phase. And those cattle there are raised from weaning basically until they go on to the next phase at the feed yard phase, where they're fed out on a grain-based, plant-based diet uh, for about 120 days and slaughtered. So one of the misnomers I hear a lot is a lot of people think that um, cattle get force-fed grain and they're on grain most of their lives if they're grain-finished. The majority of a calf's life, the majority of a cow's life, they're spent on grass. So could we talked about the stalker cattle phase. Um, for the cow-calf and the stalker cattle phase, those cattle spend the majority of their time on grass. You know, we're fortunate here in Mississippi is we've got good growing weather most of the year. So we can grow grass most of the year and our cattle producers take advantage of that. Absolutely. And another thing about uh, the grass-fed, uh, grass, grass-fed, grain-finished type deal with cattle is that most of the parts of a, a grain-fed diet are uh, components that humans can't eat. So soy whole pellets, corn gluten, or things not commonly in cattle's diet. So it's not like we're feeding our animals a lot of products that could be used for human consumption. So I think that's always important to point out as well. You know, the ethanol industry is pretty big in the country right now. I mean, most all of us have a vehicle that takes ethanol in our fuel. Um, and the, one of the main byproducts of the ethanol industry is dried distiller's grains. And that's a big component of cattle diets. Awesome. So when you're talking about cow-calf operations, what is the weeding phase? And then do all of those calves become stalker calves or is it? sex-specific? or It depends. Okay. That's, that's the always the answer. That's always yeah. the answer, Amanda. It <laughs> Perfect depends. Perfect extension answer. Yeah, but it's true. Um, so producers have a lot of options, and that's one of the things that I like to tell cattle producers whenever they 
ask a question or when any ever anybody asks a question about the cattle industry, there's no 100% this is the way that we have to do things all the time. Um, the cattle industry is very diverse and there are a lot of quote unquote right answers for what cattle producers can do in terms of different options. Um, so we have cattle producers that they, they have cows that have calves and they own those calves for the rest of their life and they actually sell those calves as beef. Um, we have majority of our cow-calf producers will sell those calves right after weaning when it's time for them to get off of mama's milk and go on to the next phase. Um, they might keep them for a period of time, say 45 to 60 days, and then sell them after that. Or they might go into the stalker cattle phase, um, which is a whole other segment of the industry that Kobe alluded to. You know, you mentioned diversity in the beef cattle uh, business. I think that that's one of our strengths in terms of producers. But it's also different from the pork and poultry industry. In fact, that all of our cattle are not cookie cutter. You know, so sometimes we have uh, diverse products that we can offer. And one way we do that is with quality grades. Uh, So we have different levels of quality grades with a prime animal being the, the, the most uh, high quality, the most marbled, um, and that means it has more fat within the muscle. That makes it taste good. The mm-hmm. taste and juiciness, and uh, I'm getting my mouth watering here thinking about <laughs> a, a good prime steak right now. But then we also have choices that a consumer can also pick a leaner product, like a select product that would not offer as much fat and as much probably taste and quality, but it would be leaner in terms of uh, fat production. So I, I think that's one thing that uh, that diversity is kind of a, a challenge for us because when you cook a slice of beef or a steak, you know, it's not always the same. And I think that also offers uh, producers a, an opportunity to say, well, what, what niche market do I want to be in? What do I want to produce in terms of uh, quality? You know, Kobe, I've got some friends that live out west in Montana and Wyoming, and um, I'm, I'm a pretty born and bred southerner. You know, I, summer's my jam mm-hmm. this time of year. You know, it's, I think they talked about highs in the 30s for next week. Yikes. I am, I am I'm not built for that. I'm not built for that kind <laughs> of weather. Um, but my friends out west, they're really excited and they're thinking, oh, well, maybe I should put a jacket on now. It's, it's about 40 degrees. I probably need a jacket right now. And the cows that live in those environments, are really different also. So mm-hmm. the cows that live in South Mississippi or even South Florida, for example, are a really different kind of animal that are adapted to our environment compared to the cows that live in Wyoming and Montana and South Dakota. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that, you know, Kobe was talking about, you know, diversity in the beef industry. You know, we've got cattle that are adapted to a multitude of different environments and they live outside. And they have to survive and thrive in all of those environments. Yeah, and I think the the farmers that, you know, you look at Mississippi's beef profile of the, the types of calves we sell. And I think Dr. Parrish and uh, you probably participated in a, did a real good uh, research project looking at feeder calves across the state of Mississippi. About 70% of our calves are, are black in the state. And I find that, you know, pretty interesting in the fact that you know, we have several, all colors of the rainbow when it comes to cattle. We have smokies, kind of gray calves, yellow calves, red calves, spotted calves. But with 70% of them being black, those farmers that produce those different color calves or those different types of calves, when they take those cattle to the stockyard and sell them on a one-by-one basis, sometimes they get discounted tick. And so those farmers really need to capitalize on getting together and becoming 
marketing in a different way to capitalize on their diverse types of calves they're producing. Well, that was going to be my next question, too, is that I think most people who don't know about the the beef industry think that Angus or black cows are the only, the best, right? What what created, I guess, a that... A phenomenal marketing okay. campaign. <laughs> phenomenal marketing But there's campaign. really not a big difference. Riddle. You know, Angus cattle in general are known for having better quality beef, and that was one of the things that they really focused on when they created that certified Angus beef program was carcass specifications that would make a really high quality eating experience Mm -hmm. and that campaign was so successful that angus became synonymous with high quality beef and consumers equate angus with high quality beef and that's one of the reasons why we see that big push and a lot of people think black means they're angus Uh um, but we have a a lot of breeds we have a lot of breeds of cattle um, that can be black Mm -hmm. also well even holsteins and they would count i guess (laughs) as a black cow and yeah i don't know about y'all but when i had intro to animal science as a freshman in college I learned that Angus was a maternal breed mostly. Uh And now I think even in the past, I guess, 15 years, they've totally changed and now are considered more of a terminal breed of cattle based on those carcass specifications that Brandy mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, and Anna, you, you're talking about the quality of the, the meat that comes from them, but can you touch a little bit about um, the safety of all meat products and how you know differences or similarities between them? Sure. Um, All meat that is processed in the U.S., all meat that goes on the grocery store, that goes in a restaurant, it goes through an inspection process. Um, There is an inspector on site every time an animal is harvested, um, and those inspectors are well-trained to look for certain kind of red flags or certain signs. And they're also going in and pulling samples for testing off of those lines as that meat is being processed. Those inspectors are stepping in over the shoulders, and they're going in and inspecting for certain things. Yeah, and I think that's also important for domestic products, but also the products that we import in sure. are also very heavily scrutinized to the same level that uh, domestic products are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bottom line is is beef is safe. It's a safe product, and there are so many safeguards within the processing process, for lack of a better word, that um, makes sure that no contaminated meat anything that would be considered unsafe would get into the food chain. And then if it does, or they think it might, there's a whole recall process that is very effective in stopping those products from getting to a consumer's plate. You know, in the last several years, I think we've seen a lot more uh, food safety issues with things like lettuce and spinach and those types of greens. I mean, that just tells me we just need to eat more meat, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Let the cows eat the, mm-hmm. the greens exactly. and then we'll eat the cows. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I guess, nationally, where the beef industry is? Obviously, we have a lot in Mississippi. So nationally, I, I think the, the cattle numbers are on the rise. And uh, we can certainly feel that as beef producers, as we know, as supply goes up, demand tends to go down. And uh, so that also influences price of feeder calves. So right now, I think our, our numbers cattle of cattle nationally are significantly higher than they were in 2014, 2015, 16, and on. But um, probably we've had a lot of natural disasters out in the Midwest that are probably going to impact cattle numbers some. 
Uh, you know, I know Brandy can probably add some more to that, but. You know, uh, that being said, you know, cattle numbers are up from what they were a couple of years ago, but we're still down from what we were even, you know, 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but we're producing more beef. So okay. the cattle industry has gotten so much more efficient. We produce more with less. We've gotten, we've improved our genetics. Um, we've selected cattle that grow fast, put on a lot of muscle and produce mm-hmm. that really high quality carcass. Cattle producers have done a good job of that. And then we've gotten really efficient in how we take care of these cattle um, in terms of the technology that we can use, the diets that we feed them, those types of things. Those cattle are producing more beef on less land and using less resources than we ever have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sustainability is kind of a, a buzzword in, in all of our industries and in agriculture, but it seems like what you're describing is sustainability, right? So can you touch on that? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely, like you said, a buzzword. And it's, it's one that has a lot of different meanings. So I'll, I'll be the first. I'll applaud the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association for kind of taking the lead and putting out there what sustainability means to a beef producer and trying to be a leader in defining what sustainability is. And basically their definition that they have put out there is that it's a road to continuous improvement and that sustainability has a lot of different moving parts. And for a producer, that means you have to be uh, sustainable from an economic uh, point of view. So you have to be making money and making things cash flow. But you also have a responsibility of being sustainable to the environment. So you have good pasture and forage lands to grow your cattle on and that you are leaving the farms in better shape than what you found them. And then there's also a social aspect to sustainability. And that means farmers give back to their communities. Uh, They're involved in different organizations. They're philanthropic. And all those things kind of fit together in a triad. So to be fully sustainable, you have to have a component of all those Mm -hmm. points working. And that's happening in the beef industry. Yeah, I think so. It it is. And I think one thing that's important is we've done a good job of documenting those things. Um, So as an industry, we haven't just said, oh, yeah, we're doing these things. Mm -hmm. There's actual data. You know, we're scientists, right? Uh Um, So we we need to have the data to be able to believe something. And as a beef industry, we've put a lot of money forward in terms of researching the environmental footprint of beef. You know, I, I mentioned we, we use less water resources, we use less land resources, and we produce more beef than we ever have before. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, when we tell our story, cattle are uh, this is a fun term that we like to use. We're upcyclers. Mm-hmm. Cattle are upcyclers. They take that, you know, something that a person couldn't utilize. So be it um, grass out on the range, be it that dried distiller's grains or that byproduct of another industry, and they upcycle it into a, a really high quality protein. So when you talk about the nutrient punch of beef, you know, bink, beef is full of zinc, iron, and protein that, you know, we're hard-pressed to find from a lot of other sources. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a really good story as a beef producer that we need to be able to tell. Absolutely. And I get I get frustrated with the media and things because they'll use emotion and um, feelings of a, a 14-year-old to say, oh, I'm a climate expert. And when we have peer-reviewed, documented research that's produced by land-grant universities across the nation, and this went through a strenuous peer-review process, and we know that data's good, mm-hmm. and people do not use it. So I think, Brandy, you're exactly right. Uh, beef farmers are going to have to be the people that get out and say, 
We've got this data. We know we're doing a good job. And besides, common sense should tell us that the grass and trees on our farms and our landscapes can sequester more carbon than the paved streets in New York City or any of mm-hmm. our uh, big cities around the country. And those people are the ones that are making the policy that says, oh, for, uh, cow farts are bad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're uh, destroying our environment uh-huh. by the greenhouse gases. So yeah. I think that's got to be farmer led. And, you know, we're starting to see more and more of that of, you know, farmers stepping outside of the gate, farm gate and telling our story. You know, we were really fortunate. My family was recently featured in a campaign um, that Beef It's What's for Dinner put out uh, talking about the Beef Quality Assurance Program, which is a voluntary program where cattle producers get certified and um, learn best management practices. You know, basically, basically the right way to do things, the right way to take care of animals. Um, And we highlighted some of the animal care and some of the way that we take care of our own personal animals. Um, So the two places that they filmed that campaign were here in Starkville at our family's place and then down in South Mississippi um, at another extension agent. Um, his family's cattle operation. So I think that's pretty unique that we're telling our our beef story, um, telling how our families, you know, grow up on the land. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got small children watching them grow up with cows is a lot of fun for me. Right. And these are beef farms in general are family farms. Right? Correct. So yep. there's little kids involved like what you have and, and Kobe has some too. And I and think you. it's Yes, and but I don't have any beef cattle, yeah. but yes, I do have two, two children, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a, a misconception for all agriculture that we are not raising animals on family farms, and they definitely are. That's what most farms are. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, animal care, so I think that's an important topic. Well, I know that's an important topic, and we do care about the welfare of, of all animals in agriculture. So what are producers... Um, doing to take care of their animals. You know, that that beef quality assurance program is one that kind of really highlights what producers are doing in terms of animal care, in terms of taking care of that animal even before it's born, in terms of making those decisions on um, the mom and the dad and kind of making those mating decisions on what that calf's going to be. And then from the time that calf hits the ground, you know, winter 2019 was pretty rough for most of the country, and it was a whole lot rougher in Mississippi than I ever thought it was going to be. You know, we had calves on our farm that were born in January, and I think it was probably March before they had a dry piece of ground to lay on. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was wet, and it was cold, and, you know, I was taught when I was growing up that those cows eat before you do. Mm -hmm. So we were out there every morning being at, you know, those cattle aren't in the barn. Um, mm-hmm. They're out in the element, so rolling out bales of hay, you know, watching those calves closely for signs of if they're getting sick, if they're getting sick, working with our veterinarian really closely to take care of those animals, do what we can to make them better. Um, you know, it, it's doing things like low-stress animal handling, you know, being cognizant of that cow's behaviors and its reactions and what they think of us as people and how they're Mm going to react to us. Yeah, I think that, gosh, you brought back a bad flashback of winter 2019. And luckily, we didn't have any cows in Mississippi then. But gosh, it would have been tough with all the rain. But yeah, you know, we see that on social media, too. A lot of farms are starting, you know, I've got this baby calf that's born in this blizzard. I'm going to put it in the truck and warm it up. Uh And I think telling some of those ag stories and really showing 
the extra step that farmers and ranchers are putting forth is really uh, important. Mm-hmm. We do that in the, the dairy industry, too. I think people are coming more forward with those stories because, like, Brenda, you said that, you know, you don't get to eat your breakfast until you feed the cows and you don't get to open your Christmas presents until exactly. you have milked the cows and taken care of the mm-hmm. cows. And, you know, there are farmers who stay up all night, every night, tending to a sick calf or mm-hmm. a cow that is having trouble delivering a calf. And, and those those aren't stories that people are seeing on social media. They're They're seeing stories that are not positive sometimes and and that's a that's a sad sad issue but that could be a whole other podcast no so. <laughs> yes the funniest thing you've seen on social media when the agriculture that's that would be a good yeah podcast. that would be yeah that'd yeah. be interesting <laughs> <laughs> well i told you that uh we would wait on the meat substitutes until the end because this also could be a whole other podcast but could you talk a few minutes about um the meat substitutes that are out there, what's the impossible beef, and there's a couple others, I think, that are becoming more popular and more readily available. Can you talk about what the differences are and whether people should explore that or not? Sure. There's a couple categories that are out there right now that are really receiving a lot of press, you know, those plant-based um, meat substitutes, so and those are showing up in the meat case, and they look really close to a burger. Um you know, but, you know, I've seen several graphics shared that show the amount of ingredients and how uh-huh. highly processed those things are. I mean, from a science perspective, it's really kind of neat to see um, the amount of technology and, mm-hmm. you know, food chemistry that goes into making those products. But you're trying to compare, you know, one ingredient in a burger mm-hmm. and that's beef. Um, to something, I don't even know how long the ingredient list is on that Impossible Burger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a laundry list, mm-hmm. it seems like. I mean, and that's something that's highly processed, and I think that goes against a lot of what we're hearing from consumers that are really health-conscious and want, mm-hmm. you know, unprocessed whole foods. Clean labels. Mm-hmm. But that's the irony of it that exactly. I I haven't been able to wrap my head around mm-hmm. is that they're asking for healthier, more natural, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, and then this stuff is not natural, right? Right. Cows and, and beef are natural. They naturally exist and that's what we're getting from them. So it is, it's a little bit of an irony. I yeah, think. It's a little bit of a catch 22, I yeah. think, whenever you start thinking about it and start breaking it down. Yeah. And I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it, that product is probably benefiting uh, another sector of agriculture, uh-huh. whether this is soybean producers or the quinoa producers or whatever it is. So, I mean, I guess it's okay to have a, a, a choice at the meat counter, but... As long as you um, know what you're choosing. Right, as long as you know what you're choosing. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. The mis, um, mislabeled um, uh, biased propaganda is just something that I think those industries shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that our challenge is going to be educating the consumers to make sure they know what they're getting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of look at it too... A little bit. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? If we didn't have a good product, everybody wouldn't be scrambling over themselves to be able to imitate it and produce something that mimics our product but doesn't come close. I mean, let's be honest. um, It's going to be really hard for them to be able to recreate a ribeye steak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I cannot think about throwing a a soybean burger on the grill and hearing the sizzle. I mean, it's not going Mm -hmm. to sizzle. And you're not going to have that smell and that aroma and the 
Mm-hmm. I mean, my and mouth doesn't water thinking right. about the, the soybean ribeye. Yeah, that's yeah. just a vegetable. Nobody yeah. likes yeah. that. Yeah. Eat a squash. Yeah. <laughs> but it, beef is healthy too. And I think that's something that gets misconstrued is that why that's why people think they need to go to these alternatives, but they do not for health purposes. Right. Yeah. But I mean, there are, if somebody's really focused on a lean diet or there's a lot of product options out there that are beef. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head about how many lean cuts of mm-hmm. beef are equivalent to like a chicken thigh or chicken breast. Mm-hmm. But there are cuts of beef that are equivalent to that in terms of the fat content. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially when you start comparing beef versus these meat substitutes um, from a nutrition standpoint, um, in terms of the amount of protein that you're getting from these for the amount of calories, mm-hmm. you're getting a lot less calories and more protein or equivalent protein from beef compared to these meat substitutes and the amount of sodium in some of those products is kind of scary when you start to look Mm -hmm. at them as well. Mm -hmm. So for somebody that's really health conscious, you want to talk about something that's, you know, one ingredient minimally processed. We basically just had to grind it up and shape it into a patty (laughs) to make it a burger. Uh Um, That's, that's about as unprocessed in a processed meat product as you can get. (laughs) Sure. Well, I appreciate having you all here and thank you for educating us on the beef industry and Um, Tune in next time to Ag Matters and make sure you like and subscribe. Ag Matters is produced and supported by the Mississippi State University Extension Service. Mm